Okay. How's everybody doing with this digital worship guide deck? <laughs> um, thanks for filling in on prayer, Christopher. The second here, I thought you were going to start by thanking the Lord for Portland Timbers. This would have been wonderful. Um, we won't talk about that. We'll talk about that later. We have more important things to talk about. Um, <clears throat> today we start a, a teaching series, a sermon series uh, in the Gospel of John. And uh, actually, let me just stop right there. Teaching series, sermon series. Uh, it is a teaching series. I'm going to be teaching you through the book of John. But did you guys know that teaching and sermon are not the same thing? Mm-hmm. Do you know that? Sermons include teaching, which is what we're going to be doing. Uh, but when somebody comes to preach and somebody gives a sermon, it's not just teaching. It's actually worship leading. And so the sermon time is not a lecture. It's not me standing up here giving you instruction. It's an interactive time to worship. So it's not just the teaching series, it's the sermon series. We're going to be worshiping together through the book of John. That's the goal here. And we start that today. Um, so I want to tell you all about that. I have so many things to tell you. What we're going to be studying, we're going to be worshiping through, why we're going to do it, what I hope that we will experience together. Uh, but before any of that, we should read the text. So if you have your phone, we're an actual Bible. We're going to read John's prologue, John 1, 1 through 18, and then we're going to read a section from the very end of the book, John 20, 30 through 31. So if you would, let's stand and worshipfully uh, read God's word together. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. Glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. But the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. John chapter 20, verse 30 through 31. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, may the words of my mouth and meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your Son, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Okay. New Sermon Series Day. John's Gospel. Uh, okay. I want to talk about the what. And then I'm going to talk about the why. So what are we studying when we study John's gospel? Uh, well, we have uh, four gospels in our Bible. Not to be confused. Well, I guess, yeah, to be confused with the gospel. We talk about the gospel all the time as Christians. Uh, and in our Bible, we have four gospels, four articulations, uh, four uh, accounts of the gospel. What is the gospel? Well, the gospel is the news that God has become a human being and has lived among us, was born, lived, died, buried, rose again, and has ascended and continues to live for us and for our salvation to the glory of God. That's the gospel. So the book of John in your Bible is John's account of that gospel. We're going to be studying that together. We're going to be worshiping through it together. We're going to go slowly, uh, very slowly. Uh, in fact, the prologue that we just read, verses 1 through 18, uh, we're going to spend five or six weeks just in the prologue. In fact, getting through the whole book might take us a better part of a year, maybe a whole year. It's going to be a slow Hike. Remember when we did a slow hike through Abraham's life? The idea is that we're moving slowly through the text so we can imagine like the, being on a, the metaphor of being on a hike and going really slow. You go slowly. Why? So you can take the time to really observe what's around you, so you can take in the view, so you can listen, so that you can see and smell and even touch. We're going to spend our lives at John's feet for the next while on Sundays. Uh, from the early church, the, the witness of the church, the tradition, has told us that 
The author of this book is John the Apostle. Now, that's a little bit confusing because in the prologue, right at the beginning, in verse 6, it says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John, and talks about this person named John who's a witness to the light. Uh, that's one of the main characters in the book who shows up right at the beginning, but that's not the John who wrote it, which is a little confusing. Usually if there's a book with a title and a person's name, and there's a person with that name who shows up right at the beginning, that's the person that the title is talking about. Not in this book. So let's just get that out of the way. Uh, actually, John, the author of this book, has never mentioned, he never mentioned himself by name in the text of his gospel. He doesn't refer to himself as John. He refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved, or the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is John, one of the twelve. One of Jesus' chosen twelve, the twelve that was among a bigger group of Jesus' disciples and spent time with him throughout his ministry. The twelve that Jesus ordained to go on, eleven of them, made it to going on to become apostles, which would be like um, would be would be the, the, the officers in the early church. This John went on to go on and, and he has uh, other books in the Bible that are attributed to him. First, second, and third John, those are letters. The book of Revelation is attributed to him. Uh, he lived to be a very old man. Tradition tells us that he spent out his last days Pastoring the church in Ephesus. And the best we can tell through uh, studying this textually, remember we talked about reading the Bible textually, looking at the textual tradition, looking at the history. Now, the best we can tell, John wrote this near the end of his life. Now, by the time John was old, uh, this story was well ingrained. The story of this time of Jesus was well ingrained in his memory. He spent time following Jesus around Galilee and Judea when he was young. Some scholars think maybe a teenager. So now he's writing this as an old man. What, what does that matter? Well, he's had lots of time to put together the way that he tells the story. That's really important in the book of John. This is actually true in the, all of the Bible. What the Bible says is just as important as how the Bible says it. I mean, we've talked about that a lot. But in the book of John, he is very, very intentional from the way he presents the story about Jesus. I would imagine that ever since Jesus ascended into heaven, um, ever since that day, John thought about his time following Jesus around Galilee and Judea all the time. It, it, it totally not just changed, it shaped his life. And then John was there at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came. And if you use your imaginations, you can imagine that John um, always and forever thinking about those years with Jesus in the flesh in Galilee and Judea, the time filled with the Holy Spirit in a special way as an apostle 
telling the stories over and over again about Jesus, not just as an eyewitness and a close friend of Jesus, but among other eyewitnesses. Hey, remember that time when Jesus fed 5,000 people and this happened? Oh, yeah. But also this other thing happened? Oh, yeah. You, you were there? Yeah, I was there. It was crazy. Do you remember this? Do you remember the kid with the, the loaves? I remember how many were there? The details coming together. By the time we get this, Every single sentence of this gospel is intentionally crafted and jam-packed, crystallized with information for us, for our edification. That's one reason we're going to go really slow. Uh, His gospel, one of the most fascinating things about it is that jam-packed thing. Uh, there is, first of all, it's, it's stylistically, it's very different than the other three, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those three all actually have a lot in common. Many people think they were all drafted from one single source. Uh, but John's gospel is totally different. The, the Greek is different. He uses very, very accessible elementary level Greek. Um, what comes to my mind is actually one of my favorite fiction books, Charlotte's Web. I don't know if you've read Charlotte's Web as an adult. Many of us read it as a kid in school because it's written in very simple English. It's one of the first, I remember my life, it was like one of the early chapter books that I read, Charlotte's Web. But I read Charlotte's Web again when I was in college in a children's literature class. Actually, I took that class twice because I failed it the first time because I thought it would be easy. Because it had children's title. It was very hard. So I had to take it a second. So I read Charlotte's Web twice in college. And I was shocked at how uh, Charlotte's Web is not a kid's book. It is deep and rich and controversial. There is a lot going on in Charlotte's Web. I kind of think about that when I think about John. The, the language is very simple. Many times, students, first-year Greek students, work through passages in the book of John. It's very simple Greek. But what he is communicating is not simple. It's highly accessible and incredibly deep. He doesn't seem to be too concerned with telling the story um, chronologically and including every single detail. Instead, he organizes the story of Jesus around major themes. Jesus is, I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. These are major sections in the book of John. He organizes it around what Jesus' miracles that John calls signs. Um, and then at the end, he, he talks about, you know, that we just read, there are many signs that Jesus performed that are not recorded. But these signs have been recorded. Why? So that you might believe Jesus is the Messiah, and by believing you might have life in his name. He records Jesus' miracles selectively and intentionally to get our attention and to evoke something in us. Uh, the first, I don't, uh, the first just over half of the book talks about Jesus's teaching, preaching, rabbinical ministry, but like the whole second half is just like the, the few days 
leading up to, to um, Jesus's death, and then shortly after, it's like there's there's this big length of time that's condensed, and then it zooms in in a very meticulous telling of Jesus's last days. John did not write this. Now, why am I telling you so much about the style of John's gospel? Well, because it it lets us know about the purpose for which John wrote it. John wasn't just trying to preserve the record of Jesus' life. He, he obviously was trying to do that. He wrote it down and it got passed around. But like we said just a second ago, he's trying to evoke something in his readers, in his hearers. That's why we're starting um, not just with the prologue, but today is these verses in John chapter 20. Jesus performed many other signs in presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That, those two verses give us a clue as to John's thinking, John's purpose as he's writing. Now that should signal us as to how we should interact with the book over the next long season. And we'll take breaks here and there and go back to the Psalms here and there. I'm sure we'll have a Christmas sermon with another. But how should we interact with this? Well, for John, everything that he's saying, and I really believe that we can argue when we look at everything we know about John's life, looking at the other books in the New Testament to bear his name, looking at what we can learn about him from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel accounts. Um, for John, all of life comes down to Knowing Jesus, seeing Jesus, experiencing Jesus, and believing in Jesus. And, and by believing, that's where you receive the good life, the good stuff. That's where you receive what the world, what the universe, what everything is all about is in believing in Jesus. For John, Jesus is the, the central focal point of everything. And to access all of the, what it means to be human, what it means for, for John to be a, a, a Jew or the people of God, for what it means for us to be Christians, everything that we desire and long for out of life in the world, in the universe, peace, harmony, flourishing, if you're under the age of 28, good lives, whatever, everything is to be found by believing in him. So John writes his life's work, his magnum opus, and he says, all right, everybody, this is for your believing, so that you might find the thing that all of us are looking for. That's what this book is. Now, why should we take time, why should we take the better part of it? a year, maybe a whole year, to study this in our church. Um, 
There are ways to do John's Gospel in a shorter amount of time that are still awesome and rich. It's great. There are ways to do John's Gospel um, uh, differently. Why are we going to do slow hike, little by little, taking it in this way? Uh, why risk monotony? Why? Uh, well, I want to tell you about, I want to, I want to, um, many, well, let me say it like this, many times when I'm up here preaching, um, uh, I, I try to preach with a very carefully crafted, intelligent place filter. And for just a moment, I want to take that filter off. Okay? So I want to tell you why we're doing this, and I want to tell you, in the same way I'd probably tell you if we were sitting at coffee. Here it is. Um, starting around 2016, something happened in our culture that had been happening under the surface for a while. Maybe if you imagine a river or a stream frozen over up top, waters running below. In 2016, the ice broke. And something that had been happening for a while under the surface went public, which were major shifts in the social and political nature of public-facing Christianity in America. 2016 was a marker. Something shifted irreversibly in our culture. We could sit around and muse as to why that happened, what factors were in play, but that's not the point here. The point is, is that it happened. Public Christianity fell out of favor. People began to recognize that under the surface of the ice, in the river that we could call public American Christianity, um, there had been ongoing widespread practices of injustice, hypocrisy, and abuse in the church. People began to recognize the depth to which racism has shaped the public opinions of evangelicalism in America. People began to see blatant, unapologetic sexism. People began to see church leaders across the country. People began to see their very own pastors rush to defend public leaders who were openly, unapologetically sexist, degrading towards women, bragging about taking advantage of women, bragging about the prowess that they could get from women. People began to notice, even in churches they claimed that men and women were equal before God, that nobody acted like it was actually true. That women and girls were treated like second-class citizens, if they were treated as citizens at all. And this is in normal, widespread, public-facing, evangelical Christianity. People begin to look around and say, this has been happening the whole time. 
open, blatant nationalism in church, complete disrespect and disregard for the lives of anyone who would interrupt the status quo or the privileges of the elite, whoever that is in your world and in your circle. Around 2016, all of this became public. Shortly thereafter, relatively shortly, just a few years, the COVID pandemic hit. And we have to shut things down. And many people realized that what they thought that they liked and what they thought that they needed in church, they actually didn't like at all. And they actually didn't need it. They were staying home and they were doing just fine. And in fact, they were better off. They didn't have to deal with all that stuff in their churches anymore. Our church here experienced a major shift during that time. And it's not just us. It's broad and in our culture. Public Christianity fell out of favor. And as a result, here in urban areas like ours, Christianity has largely been rejected or passed on as something that's probably not good for society, not good for me, not good for you, not good for us. And what's interesting is that largely in suburban and rural areas, Christianity continues to be embraced, but in many places, largely as a cultural construct. The void of spiritual power to reinforce both in the urban areas and outside Christianity has been either rejected or embraced as a means to reinforcing social and political values. Values for white conservatism or white liberalism. I'm just throwing in the word right because that's me, and I'm looking around, and that's mostly us, culturally. Now, for those of you who are still listening, I want to say all of that to say, I don't think that these tensions, these hardships are a surprise to any of us. Many of us live in worlds where loved ones, family members have checked out, have renounced Christianity for the reasons I'm talking about. Our own church, outwardly, by, by the, our numbers, by the world standards of strength, is not what it used to be. And many of these factors are part of that. Why am I saying this? Well, I'm saying this because our outward culture will no longer support our outward religion. Our religious systems are no longer in favor for this world that we live in, folks. So if we want to continue as an organized, institutional people of God here in our church, we need an infusion an injection of life. 
You hear me? We need life. We don't need cultural favor. We don't need a political win. We don't need a safe house in our conversations. We need life. Or else, this is not going to work anymore. Because when we take the life away, all we have is this cultural religious thing, which in large part, 10 years ago, was applauded. But you know what? It's not applauded anymore. And while that might feel tragic, it's actually wonderful. Because outward religion will lead us straight to hell. A life in Jesus' name that comes from hearing and seeing and by believing, that's eternal. That's forever. So we as a church, I'll say it now, I'll say it out loud, what many of us have known and felt and whispered quietly, we as a church only have a future together as it concerns life in Jesus' name. So where do we get it? Where do we get hooked up to the life machine? Where do we get plugged in? Where do we get renewed? Where do we get revived? Where do we get reshaped? Where do we get confronted and torn down? Where do we get spoken to and built up? Where? These things I have written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Folks, as we've learned, this whole book is breathed by God. His Spirit inhabits these pages. But you know what? These spirit-inhabited pages, there's literally a book in here which literally writes the words, uh, and I'll paraphrase them. If you need life in his name, read this part of the book. That's what we're going to do. We're going to go to the Gospel of John. The instructions say if you need life, read, read this part. And then believe the one that this story is about. You might say, Charlie, I already believe. I have believed. I believe at this point that I was converted or was baptized or baptized and was converted. I have believed. I got the belief part. I got that. I need the live part. So I'm kind of confused. Why are you why are you going so hard on this belief? I have the belief, Charlie. You guys know that I, I grew up in pastoral ministry. I'm a dad's a pastor, my brother's a pastor. Um, some of you know that my great grandfather was Maybe this is where I get it. It was a hard line Midwestern fundamentalist Baptist pastor. 
Um, I grew up in this. I've been in this a long time. And I say that um, because, so, because what I'm about to tell you is that you won't try to figure out where this came from. I literally had someone say to me, a leader in the church, well respected, well loved, and I'll paraphrase his, his words. This was about a 15 minute thing that I'm going to bring down into about two sentences. He said, Charlie, you preach the gospel, and that's good, but the people in the church need more. They need to know how to live. They need to know how to handle problems in their marriages. They need to know how to raise their kids. They need to know how to handle their finances. They need to know how to think politically. Um, you preach the gospel, that's good, but we need to move on from that because they need more. You need to teach them how to live. Oh, that's not good. That sort of thinking, again, filters off. You can call me later if we need to talk. That sort of thinking is part of our message. The idea that we get into this by believing. And once you have belief, you put that in your pocket. Don't lose it. You're going to need it, especially before you come here to this table. But what the main business, the, the meat of the meal, the real stuff of the Christian life, the depth of discipleship, that comes from mature, wise people like me telling immature, unwise people like you what to do. How to be married. How to make sure you find somebody and go ahead and get married. Because often with this thinking, singleness is not good enough. Which is a shame. Because we read the Bible and our Lord Jesus himself. Celibate until he marries the church. Apostle Paul. Forget about that. We need to teach people how to get and how to be married. We need to teach them, if they don't have kids yet, how to have kids, because that's godly and that's mature. Once you have your kids, we teach them how to, how to educate those kids, how to get them raised, how to get them to grow up. We teach them what to do with their money so they can get blessed, so they can own their own business, so they're not enslaved to the government. Uh, and by the way, speaking about that, we need to teach them how to vote. We need to teach them how this all works. We need to build this institution, build our world, because we're building God's kingdom, and this is where it is. And it starts with belief, get that done, and then it continues with, look at me, listen to me. I'm the man, do what I say. No. We will see in John's gospel that Jesus himself has zero Tolerance for that kind of religion. And we will see over and over again John teaching us by believing you might have life. It's not believe, get that done, and then move on to learning better things from people who are better than you. No. It's all of us broken people going with broken John. Jesus, saying, that's him. Believe in him. Do you believe in him? Let's believe in him together. 
Did you know that the Apostle John never once in his gospel uses the word belief as a noun? He only uses it as a verb. Belief is not something you have. Believing is something you do. The Christian life is not about getting belief and then doing being a good person or doing being like your favorite Christian. Hopefully it's me because I'm the most religious person here. Oh. Christian life is about believing in Jesus. They're believing in Jesus and by believing, through believing, getting life. Life in his name. And this believing is a gift, not something we can muster up. This belief is often found outside of the cultural religious system. Not always. We'll get to John 3, and we're used to Jesus confronting the Pharisees as the bad ones. And then it's a Pharisee he sits down with and gives the greatest discourse ever in the New Birth. Jesus is going to confront us church people. But when we come to him in the dark, saying, Rabbi, he says, let's talk. He will always be surprising us. Now we're out of time, and I have raised my voice quite a bit. So let's do this. Let's end with this question. Are you believing? Are you up for believing? Do you desire believing? Is believing for you? Let me reframe the question. Have you? Our world has been screaming it now for years. Screaming at and poking the holes in this system that we call church, or we can call, we can use all the adjectives, we can use evangelical, white, reformed, American, oh, have mercy. This system, are you done believing in this? And are you ready to believe in Jesus? You're not the same. There's life there, though.